and welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. My name is Warren. With me, as always, is my co-host. I'm the dog. He's Duck, and we've got a full show today. We on vacation, and uh, we we saw the conclusion of the NBA Finals uh, during our time off, as well as the introduction to. Uh, the 2021 Tokyo Olympics. So, Mark, we've got a lot to cover in a short amount of time to do it. Are you ready to roll, my friend? I'm ready to roll. Let's let's get it done. All right. Well, let's start off as we always do with some dog and duck news. And uh, it was a, a full week uh, this week with the Pac-12 Media Day. Uh, I know you you've got. Uh, a juicy nugget to share for your ducks here in just a minute, so I won't steal your thunder on that. But um, uh, several, uh, well, a handful of dogs on the uh, All Pac-12 selection. Uh, first team tight end, Kate Otten, uh, no surprise there. Uh, left tackle, uh, Jackson Kirkland, uh, again, no surprise there. And then um, the only uh, participant on the first team for the uh, defense all Pac-12 was Trent McDuffie. Um, the only second team participant for the dogs was uh, linebacker Edifuan Ulafosio. Um, so I think for me looking at that, I, I'm a little surprised that there's not more representation of the dogs in the, the all Pac-12 media selection. But, you know, I think one of the things that I, I'm, I get maybe I'm kind of beginning to learn as I go into this season is that because of the shortened uh, 2020 season and the, uh, the, the waiver exemption to, um, you know, have an extra year of eligibility, it sounds like there's a lot of teams that are bringing back a lot of players. And, um, you know, maybe that's, that's part of the reason why there's a bunch of guys that I think are NFL quality guys on the Husky roster that are just not being mentioned right now. So, um, yeah, that that was interesting. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the Olympics later, but um, worth noting that the dogs have several um, uh, Huskies in the Olympic Games right now. Uh, too many to list, uh, but... Uh, some notable ones being, uh, you know, Husky women's basketball, great, uh, Kelsey Plum, um, a number of, as you might expect, um, rowers. We've got some of our softball stars uh, showing up well. Um, so a lot for Husky fans to be proud of in the Olympics. Uh, Matisse Thibel, uh, of course, as well who's representing Australia. So yeah, a lot of, um, a lot of good, uh, you know, Husky Olympic news coming out right now. So that's exciting. But Mark, tell me what's going on in duck news right now. Well, I, I think you mentioned Kelsey Plum. I think she's already won a gold medal with the three on three team that she was a uh, part of. So uh, congrats that's to correct. her. Yeah. 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 Uh, and Matisse Thibel might be on his way to a gold medal too, because it sure doesn't look like the U.S. basketball team is destined for gold. So I think I think Australia is looking better and better as having a shot. Uh, but yeah, similarly, Oregon. Uh, I think the last I saw was 19 Olympians, uh, 11 of whom are competing for Team USA, and then an assortment that are competing for other countries. Uh, most of them in track and field no surprise there uh the event i'm i think i'm most looking forward to is the 1500 where it's uh cole hawker who was uh this year's won this year's olympic trials and and uh, ncaa winner as well and then matthew uh centrowitz who was a past olympic champ so it'll be really fun to see a couple different ducks in the same race uh of course devin allen football player is in the 110 meter hurdles and uh, and then Galen Rupp, uh, past Olympian, running the marathon this year for the first time after being in the 10,000 for the last couple Olympics. So a lot of, lot of track and field that I'll be following next week or, or later on this weekend as, as those races start up. But uh, the one thing I did want to point out about the media poll is that uh, the Oregon Ducks, 
this actually surprised me. Chosen as the overwhelming favorites to win the Pac-12, they received 27 of 40 votes uh, to win. That's to win the Pac-12 as a whole. I think they it was even more um, declarative, the votes for them to win the North. Uh, so 10, 10 votes to uh, USC, three votes to Utah were where those other votes got distributed. <clears throat> Uh, just to get it out there, I don't put a whole lot of stock in this, Warren. I looked it up uh, over the last 10 years, basically since we've had a Pac-12 championship game. Uh, the media has correctly picked nine of 20 division winners and four of 10 champions. So you would be better off asking your local gorilla to make picks than having the uh, the Pac-12 uh, media do it. They're, they're less than 50%. But um, Nevertheless, it's still fun to go into a year uh, rooting for a team that is playing the favorites. Although if you look through the, the all Pac-12 teams, you don't necessarily see a lot of Duck names on there either. So I'm, I'm scratching my head a little bit as to why the Ducks are the overwhelming favorite. I thought this would be a year where maybe four or five teams would have votes from different writers because there, there was not a clear-cut team. Yeah, that's a great point. Um... I think it seems like there's a general consensus that because of the um, excellent job that Cristobal has done with recruiting and that, uh, you know, I mean, let's face it, they've uh, won the Pac-12 the last two years in a row. If you're going to, if you're going to put your money on, on uh, someone you want to put your money on the one that apparently has the most talented team and also has the, the best track record in recent history. So not not entirely surprising um you know to me i i do wonder how much research is put into this you know thus your you know your statement that it might be better to ask uh, an ape or a monkey you know what what who they pick but um yeah i think the that if you ask the casual fan who's got the most talented team they're probably going to say oregon who's got you know who's won it the last two years obviously they're going to say Oregon so yeah not not a huge surprise there yeah I think the the lack of a of a signature quarterback is probably why I would think there would be a little more you know um I would think there'd be some love for more love for USC with with Keaton Slovis seemingly as the best quarterback in the Pac-12 coming back you know Washington has an experienced quarterback coming back um, Arizona State even I mean they've got all kinds of turmoil surrounding that program and who knows whether their coaching staff will even be in place when the season kicks off but they do have Jaden Daniels as a quarterback who is really an exciting player so that, I think that's the part where I'm a little bit um, miffed but uh, like we said can't can't put too much stock in it uh, but it's it's a fun talking point nonetheless. Well I think you know um, that you mentioned like ASU with the turmoil that they've got there, I think everybody was probably pretty hesitant to um, throw their votes in with with them, especially you know not knowing what's going to happen there. And and uh, you know I I would say when you look at a guy like Phil Steele, you know he that's a guy that you know he researches the schedules, he researches the rosters, he calls every single coach throughout the entire country, has interviews with them. Um, so I put a lot more stock in what a guy like Phil Steele has to say than, you know, a bunch of coaches that, and media people that really, they, they may or may not look, you know, beyond their own little, you know, uh, little square of, of grass to, to make, you know, make these decisions. But, um, you know, I think it, it bodes well for both teams. I think obviously it will help Oregon continue their uh, narrative that, that they're, you know, the dominant team in the PAC 12. And I think for the dogs, you know, they want that chip on their shoulder. They want to be that disrespected team. So for maybe sure. this will, you know, be, be that thing that really kind of fuels the fire for them. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, probably the, the biggest story happening in college football right now, and that is uh, the 
I don't know if the word merger is the, the correct uh, word, but it's it's the departure of uh, Oklahoma and Texas leaving the Big 12 to jump in with the SEC. Um, even today, you know, news has come out that uh, this has been approved. There's only one more hoop to jump through tomorrow with the, the, the Board of Regents, Board of Trustees, something like that. This is going to happen in 2025. Uh, Oklahoma and Texas will be a part of the SEC. So Mark, what's your instant reaction? We haven't talked about this at all. What's your instant reaction to, um, to this news? And then let's chat a little bit about who the winners and the losers are in this, this uh, new development. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I don't like it. Uh, I, I think mo with most of these, um, realignment moves that have happened, uh, you know, over the course of the last several years, uh, it, it seems to um, really all be based on what's going to increase the television revenue for the conferences. And there seems to be very little stock placed in local and regional rivalries that have existed for decades. Uh, and there seems to be very little thought for how these this kind of nationalization of college sports will impact the sports other than football, you know, where like, um, what does it mean for like the women's soccer team to have to now travel to some of these different states, like for the team from Oklahoma is going to have to travel to Florida and stuff like that. That just never seems to be part of the decision-making. It seems to come down purely to what is going to maximize our, our television revenue. And so from that standpoint, it's an obvious move that the SEC would want to attract Oklahoma and Texas. And it's a somewhat obvious move for Oklahoma and Texas if we're just talking financially for them to want to be a part of the SEC. But I just, I don't like it for reasons beyond that. I think um, I didn't like it when Texas A&M and, and Missouri left because it broke up these longstanding rivalries of Texas A&M versus Texas, which always played on Thanksgiving weekend. And and Missouri versus Kansas, which was known affectionately as the border war and had gone on for a hundred years. And, and those rivalries were just kind of wiped away. And as, as with similar rivalries in other parts of the country, like the backyard brawl between Pittsburgh and, and West Virginia that was disbanded because of another conference realignment. And so I, I think those are the types of things that make up the fabric of college football. They make up why we love college football. Um, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State is a one-sided rivalry. It's it's about as one-sided as a hammer versus a nail uh, under the, the current uh, leadership of those coaches. And yet it's always kind of something that I enjoyed tuning into, the Bedlam game, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and on the occasional times where Oklahoma State would make it a game, it was always pretty good theater. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be quite as excited for the Oklahoma-Arkansas game. Like that just isn't going to, you know, uh, bring up the same kind of feeling. So I, I think it's uh, unfortunate. I think it's the way college football is going. Uh, it does make me wonder what other dominoes are going to fall in the years to come. Uh, and are we just moving more and more towards having some sort of kind of super conference that goes from coast to coast? Yeah. Uh, but in the short term, yeah, it's, it is just kind of a bummer. Well, on this one, for maybe the first time in a while, we agree wholeheartedly. Uh, this is, to me, just another sign that uh, we are losing the, like you said, the very fabric of what has made college football so special and great for so many years. Uh, it, you know, college football, I think, is a is a a generational. It's a you know, it's a family type of sport it's the kind of thing that that whole families gather together in their living rooms they go to games uh fathers pass down to sons and daughters and you know and and to see these things really just real aligned like chess pieces on a board based purely for money and competitive advantage it really it really does kind of smack of a lot of the the, the corporate um, influence that has taken hold of this sport over the last several years. You know, I think when you add this to uh, what we've seen happen, you know, just in the recent uh, history with the the opening up of the transfer portal, 
name image likeness now this the 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 12 game or the 12 team college football playoffs you know you have to kind of begin to wonder you know what's the end product here what is this thing going to look at look look like when it's all said and done like you said is it a super conference is it uh you know the nfl um development league i mean who who knows but uh, you know, let's take a, let's take a minute and maybe examine who are some of the winners and the losers in this um, transaction in this in this you know uh, departure from from the the Big Twelve for for Oklahoma and Texas. So, you know, it seems pretty obvious to me that when you look at the the winners at the top of that list has to be the SEC. So, Mark, is the SEC the obvious winner in this uh, transaction? I think the SEC as a conference certainly is. I think they're going to make a ton of money and that's going to get filtered down to every other school. I wouldn't necessarily think every SEC fan base is a winner in this. And that's just for the simple, I mean, there, there's a zero sum here in terms of wins and losses. So if you're uh, expanding the SEC, it's at, what is it, 14 schools now? So this would bring it up to 16 schools. Uh, well, eight of those schools are going to be below average, uh, period. And right now, that's seven of those schools that are going to be below average. So one of the school, one of the top seven, one of the schools that right now is kind of used to being, uh, you know, better than average, is used to having good seasons, is is definitely going to see a downturn. If not, you know, Texas or Oklahoma is going to find it a lot harder to win. <laughs> Uh, the games that they're used to winning in the SEC. So I, I think um, if we were to fast forward, you know, 10 years, it wouldn't surprise me if we find some school like Auburn, who has been pretty nationally relevant recently, has mm -hmm. won a national title, has been in another national title game within the last decade or so. It yep. wouldn't surprise me if Auburn kind of turns into like that seven and five, six and six, five and seven type team where they're just dropped in the pecking order. Yeah. Um, wouldn't surprise me if if uh, Texas A&M has something similar happen. Um, and so I think the conference as a whole is a winner in this, but I don't necessarily think that every every fan base is. And I think those lower level teams, the Mississippi schools, the Arkansas, the mm. Missouri's, the teams like that, I think now it just got even harder for them to develop a competitive team in the SEC if if Oklahoma and Texas are now included in that. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You got to think the teams, like you said, the Mississippi teams. You know, what about Tennessee? You know, that's a team that, for for one strange reason after another, has not been able to get back to where they were under Phil Fulmer. And uh, you, you know, this is not going to help things for them. Uh, you know, University of South Carolina, uh, the other USC. Um, man, that that separation between them and Clemson in the ACC, but you know, the, the bragging rights that exist within that state are only gonna continue to, to go down for them. So yeah, I think, I think definitely what it comes down to is that this is a, a big time money grab. It is gonna help uh, you know, add more screen time for all of the SEC, uh, but really, you know, I think it, this is an ESPN when you know this is the esp the espn and the sec are intimately tied together at the hip there's no secret there and they own the sec network um you know it's again it's no secret that that most of their uh, analysts are uh you know over the top sec uh you know apologists so you got to think that that this is only going to continue to to bolster that narrative that there there is the SEC and there's everybody else, um, and you know so I think uh, I think that's if you're an SEC fan or you know stakeholder, then that's a win, uh, and, you know. And I would say that I think in addition to that, Oklahoma and Texas Tech probably from an athletic department standpoint will be winners in this. There's more money for them. More yeah. money will probably help in all of their sports, at least from a funding standpoint, bigger deals, 
name, image, and likeness, the players that, that are in the SEC are going to get more money now than they would have perhaps in uh, the others, you know, in the Big 12. Uh, but maybe let's turn our attention to the Big 12 itself. You take out the two historic big dogs of the, 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 the Big 12. You know, Oklahoma has been clear in a way the, the best. Texas, of course, is, has historically been a blue blood and had an incredible run with Mac Brown in the early 2000s. So you take those two anchorhead teams out of the Big 12, and who's, who's the winner now um, from a college football com competition standpoint in the Big 12 now that those two big dogs have left? So if, if the conference stays together as it is, if those eight teams, if it, we, we get another version of the Big Eight, right? And if those eight yeah. teams decide to tough it out, I think, um, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see any number of schools take advantage. TCU or Oklahoma State or, or Baylor seem to be the ones that have knocked on that door. Uh, although now it's Iowa State is the team that has come the closest to, to kind of getting to the top of the mountain and seems to have the best team coming back this year. Uh, West Virginia has a has a program history that would suggest that they're every bit as good as those teams like none of none of those teams outside of Kansas from a football perspective are are really bad you know um, I mean they're all fairly competitive and fairly evenly matched so I think yeah somebody could take advantage of that and win a conference a couple times and get to some major bowl games and if the playoff still goes through, which I think is very much in question now of kind of how the playoff gets formed with, with all of these moves. But if, if there is still kind of the same access to the playoff, we could see one of those schools become a playoff participant multiple times and really kind of establish their own brand. I think my concern would be that the Big 12 is almost kind of becomes more of like a mid-major, like that we see them more the way that we see the American Athletic Conference with Houston and Cincinnati and some of these schools that at one point in time considered themselves major schools, but kind of found themselves without a chair when the music stopped due to reshuffling and now are considered good. Like when they have a really good season, they're, they're pretty competitive, uh, but they're not necessarily a, a national draw. They're not necessarily the type of, of team that gets you really excited to tune into. And that's kind of how I feel about the rest of these Big 12 teams is, is um, they just don't have the excitement. If, if you were tuning into a Big 12 game over the last five years, it was probably a game either where Texas and Oklahoma were playing each other or where one of these other eight teams was, was playing a competitive game against Texas or Oklahoma. Like there just wasn't a lot of reason to tune into like Iowa state, Kansas state, like that doesn't, that doesn't move the needle a lot. So I think that would that would be my my concern overall for the Big Twelve is that it just it just kind of becomes a lesser conference in in the public's mind. Well, you know, I mean, I think that's a that's a valid point. Um, you know, and uh, none of us can predict what's going to happen here in these next few years. Uh, obviously, this is not happening till twenty twenty five, so there's going to be more moves that are made, and. Like you said, what we don't know yet, Mark, is, is this the first kind of tectonic shift um, that establishes these, you know, super conferences? Or will the Big 12 now go and recruit a couple of teams that obviously are not going to have the same kind of name brand, but could potentially build a market share like a Houston? You know, I wonder, like, a, like an SMU, Yep. or a, a Cincinnati or a Central Florida. And now that team, you know, or those two teams have now the credibility of being in a conference that they didn't have before. Yep. And, you know, I mean, there's, Houston is, is in many ways kind of like a, it's like, you know, a, a potential sleeping giant in that they're in a very talent laden part of the country Houston's kind of out there in terms of like geographically separated from, uh, you know, Austin and and even A and M and and obviously Oklahoma, but 
if they're all of a sudden, uh, you know, a Big 12 team, uh, do they do they become more that that conference power if if invited in? You know, so there could be some unique winners from this. Both, you know, those that stay, i.e., a Baylor or you know an Iowa State, but also those that are invited in that now get to you know up their game in terms. You know, it's like when Utah came into the Pac-12. You know, yeah. they were the doormats for a couple of years, but look at them now. I mean, they're legit. So yeah, that, I can that, see that happening. And on that note, I would think, uh, I think BYU is a natural team for the Big 12 to pursue in the sense that they're in a major media market. They have a huge fan base. You know, every Mormon in the country basically is going to tune into a BYU game uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, they have a really good tradition. They have a Heisman Trophy winner. They, they won a national championship in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and they have a huge, they have a large stadium that seats over sixty thousand people. Like they're in in most ways, they're not a mid-major conference uh, yeah. right now. They're playing as an independent. I think that's totally the type of team that they could add that just gives them another team. That I think you know, if if Oregon or Washington is playing BYU, I think it means pretty much the same thing that it means if they're playing Oklahoma State or you know somebody like that. Um, I mean, it feels feels like okay we're playing a, a good team yeah. so uh yeah i think they will probably look to add some teams like that if they can and to try to bolster their numbers a little bit and and just try to stay relevant but i think this definitely moves them down in the pecking order where i think the pac-12 has kind of felt like the fifth team at the table in terms of yeah. of the conference hierarchy and i think the big 12 definitely falls below the Pac-12 now and, and is very clearly the fifth best conference. No doubt, no doubt. I mean, if you took, if you took, you know, USC and Oregon out of the, the Pac-12, I mean, it would be greatly diminished. So that's essentially what's happened here with, with the Big 12. So yeah, let's talk about the losers. Obviously, as we just alluded to, the Big 12 is the big loser here. Um, you know, they, they've lost their two premier teams, the two teams that generate the most ratings have the great, the greatest fan base, the most history. Um, you know, Mark, as I was kind of thinking about this and researching this a little bit, you know, when you think about, um, the dominance that the SEC has had, and then you add in these two teams, particularly Oklahoma, what, what that means is that, um, you know, well, so uh, over since the 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 introduction of the the college football playoffs, uh, there have been a, a total of 28 teams who could participate. You know, each year for each year, and as of right now, there's there's eight SEC teams that have been a part of those 28. But if you factor in Oklahoma, now that's 12 of 28 right. teams. You know, same thing with the Heisman. If you factor in Oklahoma, then 10 of the last 14 will have come from the SEC. Um, so I think uh, this, is, this, is, this is a loss for the Big 12. I think it's a loss for the Big 10, the ACC, and the Pac-12 as well. Yeah, I think I wonder if there's a, a desire for the Big 12 to rebrand itself a little bit as a basketball league. You know, you have Baylor is sitting there. They won the most recent national title. You have Kansas, who's obviously a, a blue blood when it comes to basketball. You have some other schools like West Virginia or Oklahoma State that have had a pretty good tradition as far as college hoops is concerned. And if you if you reach out and add some schools, like you mentioned Houston, who's in the final four last year as a basketball school or Cincinnati, which has a, a good basketball tradition. Uh, maybe there's kind of a way where they kind of almost pivot to where obviously they're still going to play football. They're still going to try to be competitive in football, but they just kind of shift their focus and say, we're going to be really good at basketball. We're going to try to put together some other, other, you know, um, success in other sports. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of grasping at straws a little bit with that, but uh, I mean, you know, that may be the way that they go, but even that is just, you know, it's, 
it's kind of like you know when you know when you you lose a game or let's say you lose a part in a play or something like that and your mom tries to console you and tell you well at least you'll have more time to play with your friends you know and it's like uh taking two teams that had uh, very good basketball programs in Texas and Oklahoma and sending them to SEC and saying, well, now we're going to be a basketball league doesn't really feel yeah. like a win. That's no, that's, that's fair. And, uh, and it does make the SEC just a stronger basketball school because now exactly. they, they don't have a lot of basketball schools there. And now they just added a couple. Exactly. Uh, you know, to your point about the playoff, I do wonder if, um, you know, if they if they shift to a 12-team playoff that has a certain number of automatic berths, a certain number of at-large berths, I don't know that this actually helps the SEC get more teams into mm-hmm. the playoff. I think um, because there's going to be so much parity or so much attrition with those teams at the top, I'll be very interested down the line if, if there's, you know, an eight and four Florida team that just played a loaded schedule in the SEC, are they really going to be thought of higher than like an Oklahoma State team that's 10 and two or 11 and one? History says no. Like history says, um, you know, ultimately record does matter and, and the teams with fewer losses generally get picked over the teams with with more losses. And uh, so I, I, I'll be interested to see whether uh, it really feels like the SEC has gained in terms of its uh, playoff percentage, or if it's just sharing a, a handful of berths amongst a greater, you know, number of teams now with, with the addition. Well, of this- yeah. I mean, I think I, I would probably disagree with you on that. I think, um, you know, first of all, I don't know if Oklahoma makes this move if it weren't for the fact that there's a 12 team playoff coming right around that same time that they're moving into the SEC because you know, they were almost assured that, hey, if they go 11 and one, they're going to the, the college football playoffs. I mean, they did it four out of the last, you know, eight years, something like that. Um, why would they give that up uh, unless they, they, they saw the, the change in the football playoffs coming up with the 12 team, uh, you know, distribution? And that does mean that there's, you don't have to be a conference champion to get into the college football playoffs. And I would disagree. Now, maybe maybe eight and four doesn't uh, a push out a ten and two, but eight and four probably pushes out uh, a nine and three in in this you know arrangement with with you know the ESPN uh, narrative driving this this you know storyline that hey eight and four in the SEC is a lot more impressive than nine and three in a, a really weak big 12. I mean, are you kidding me? Are, if Oklahoma State loses three, t- th- loses three games in the big 12, do they deserve to be in a, you know, the college football playoffs over an eight and four Florida? Those are the, the arguments that are going to come. And I don't think they're going to land in, in Oklahoma State's favor. So I, I agree with what you just said. I think here's my question. I think um, if I'm Oklahoma, I'm looking at this and I'm saying our history is second to none. We have an outstanding coach. We've been churning out Heisman Trophy winners. Like we can go compete with the best of the best. Texas, I think, believes all of those things, but doesn't have like the last decade to kind of prove any of that, right? Right, right. And so I'm, I guess I'm looking at it and I'm saying, uh, if, if we were to fast forward, um, I would assume that Alabama is going to be good as long as Nick Saban is there. And I would assume that Georgia is going to be good as long as Kirby Smart is there. And I would assume that Oklahoma is going to be good as long as Lincoln Riley is there. And after that, I don't really know. LSU just won a title under Ed Orgeron. It would not surprise me at all if LSU kind of takes a step back and doesn't really return to that that level. You know, that they're lurking as like a top 20 team maybe, but not. But yeah. we never see them again as that nationally dominant team. I think LSU, LSU and Auburn, those are the kind of teams that they get, you know, they, they've got a solid foundation of talented players because they're in – you know, the most talent rich part of the nation. 
and then they get a few special players, things come together, and they win a national championship. I mean, are they are they the the juggernaut of Alabama? No, but um, you know, next year they may have the next Joe Burrows and four future first round uh, wide receivers on that team. And that would not surprise me in the slightest, but you know, what makes Alabama so special is they can lose, you know, 13 guys to the NFL draft and come back the next year and be better than they were before, you know? And so, you know, Oklahoma, they've been able to reload very well under Lincoln Riley. Uh, You know, you mentioned the Heisman's, and the, the, the success that they've had with, with the quarterbacks in that system. But yeah, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know how much of a foregone conclusion it is for Oklahoma that they're going to continue to be as dominant as they, as they step into the SEC for two reasons. One, I think week in, week out, the competition is going to be, you know, much more physical and that's going to create more injuries, which can create more potentials for loss. And then now they're directly recruiting against other SEC teams. And uh, I'm not sure, you know, that's, that's a big question mark for me. Is them being in the SEC a recruiting advantage? Or, you know, is it now a, a, regru- a recruiting challenge? And I don't know if that's, if that's going to be discovered until we get into it. Well, and I think that's why this is so I think we're both mourning this as college football fans and and don't necessarily want to see this happen. And yet there's always been this kind of fascinating question of like, well, how would Ohio State do in the SEC? How would Chip Kelly's Oregon teams have done if they had to play an SEC schedule? Well, we're going to get some version of that answer the first time we see a Lincoln Riley team play an SEC schedule is is we're going to kind of get our answer and and for that reason alone, this will be kind of a fun experiment. I'm still against it yeah. in every sense. I still wish it wasn't happening. But for that reason alone, I think the first year or two of it will be pretty interesting to see how these two schools do drop into the toughest and deepest conference in America. Well, Mark, I could go grumpy old man uh, all day on this, but let's go ahead. We'll move on. Um, we've got a limited amount of time left. As we mentioned at the top of the show, um, while we were, uh, while, while I was gone, uh, the NBA playoffs uh, concluded. The NBA champions for 2021 are none other than the Milwaukee Bucks. Just as I predicted in our pre-game or pre-playoff uh, episode. Um, and uh, it was under the incredible play of Giannis uh, Antikin. Canupo, I, I can't, I still can't get his name right, but uh, yeah, Mark, give us a breakdown of what you saw from Giannis in that, in that uh, championship series. I think I saw a young player go to a level that I didn't know he had in him. I think if you would ask me before the playoffs, I would have said he was one of the top five players in the league but not necessarily capable of, you know, carrying a team to a championship in the way and the manner in which he did. You think about his, his team fell behind two games to zero against the Brooklyn Nets. His team fell behind, had lost the first game of the Eastern Conference Finals, fell, fell behind two games to zero uh, in the NBA Finals, and he put them on his back. Uh, yes, they got some great supporting performances, especially from Chris Middleton a couple times, but um, Giannis had back-to-back 40-point games in game two and game three, which is a a very rare club to be in. And then he added 50 points in game six to clinch the finals. It's one of the greatest finals performances ever. I mean, it's on the short list with with some of the all-time greats. And you look at his resume now, Warren, he has a finals MVP. He has two regular season MVPs. He has a defensive player of the year award, and he's 26 years old. And to put that in perspective, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, and Shaquille O'Neal were all 27 when they won their first NBA title. So somehow he's ahead of the game, even comparing him to maybe the three most dominant players of, of, you know, our recent history here. So I did not know he had any of that in him. It was so fun to just see him continue to kind of go to another level, even in that game six, 
where, you know, the book on Giannis is he, he couldn't shoot free throws. He was struggling immensely from the free throw line. And then he makes 17 of 19 in the biggest game of the Mm -hmm. season and just did everything that you want to see a great player do in, in carrying a team to his championship handled it all with, with class and a sense of humor and just seems to be so incredibly likable. And it was, it was one of the most fun um, experiences of just seeing a player evolve that I can remember. Yeah, Mark, you know, the reason why we do this show is because we love to talk sports. We love to, we love to explore the what ifs and, uh, you know, debate the, the, the greatest of all times. And, you know, as we've mentioned on the show before, this, this show really was born from a, an argument, or not an argument, but a, a great conversation that began around this time last year as the last dance was, you know, making its way, uh, you know, it was, it was bringing comfort to our afflicted souls. And, um, you know, we began talking about the greatest um, NBA team of all time. You know, before we get into that, you mentioned Giannis making the 17 of 19 free throws. And I think one of the what if questions that I always asked as I watched you know, Shaquille O'Neal in his prime was, what if he could have been a more consistent free throw shooter? The, the strategy of Hackershack was built on the foundation that he can't shoot free throws. Therefore, you can't give him the ball at the end of the game. Therefore, your best player is neutralized when you need him most. Yeah. That was a similar assumption made about Giannis. And he turned that on its head at a time when they needed him most, making those 17 out of 19. And who knows whether he'll regress back to, you know, his, um, you know, previous statistical, you know, norm of uh, being a, a pretty low percentage free throw shooter, or if this is the breakthrough for him to really become that consistent free throw shooter that really uh, takes his one kryptonite off the table for most teams that are trying to stop this guy. I think it's a fascinating thing that that will be really exciting to see how that plays out in the days ahead, in the years ahead for him. Um, you know, where does he fall along the greats? You know, Mark, as I mentioned, uh, around this time last year, we came up with a uh, kind of an all-time great list. Uh, we called the top tier, the GOAT tier, of course, greatest of all time. At point guard, we had uh, Magic Johnson and Steph Curry, shooting guard, Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. At forward, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Tim Duncan, Larry Bird. And then at center, of course, Shaquille O'Neal and Hakeem Olajuwon. And, you know, as we, we talked about, uh, you know, where those forwards landed, one of the ones that, um, kind of came up later in the conversation was, what about this young guy named Giannis? Where does he land? I think if you'd have asked us at, that, at this time last year, we probably would have put him somewhere in the all pro tier, uh, which was Scotty Pippen, Kevin McHale, James Worthy, Kawhi Leonard, Dennis Rodman, Paul Pierce, a very, very respectable place to be but has he moved above those guys and uh, what's it going to take for him to to uh, really elbow his way into that uh, top tier of the all-time greats or excuse me the greatest of all times so a quick uh disclaimer is that that list of 10 guys begins basically with guys who entered the league in 1980 or after so um you know, I think when we first made that list, I think you had Kareem and Dr. J and I didn't because you remembered them more than I did. And and so if it kind of, you know, if you want to adjust the dates, you could have some other guys. We're not necessarily saying Kareem doesn't belong with, with those guys. It was just kind of, it was well, an easy way. Yeah. To, so I think the parameters, Mark, I'm actually looking at my notes here. The parameters were for the last 40 years. Yeah. So, 
So it doesn't mean that they had to start their career in 1979, but they they played over the last 40 years and we were really focusing on what they did over the last 40 years. Yeah, and so if you just take that list of 10 that you started with, um, all of those guys have won at least one MVP trophy. All of them have won multiple titles uh, as you know, an alpha dog, like of some, of some kind. So that's kind of a really easy distinguishing mark. And if you look at Giannis, you would say um, the only thing that he's missing in comparison to that group is the second title. And so then, so then my question is, well, so where does that put him? Who, who are the guys that, that just missed that list? And I think about like Dirk Nowitzki yep. won an MVP and won a title. Uh, Giannis has won more MVPs than Dirk Nowitzki. He's only 26, like we mentioned. Yeah. Dirk won his title very late in his career. So it feels like Giannis has already kind of passed the Dirk mark. Um, Dwayne Wade had a fantastic emergence in the NBA Finals and won a title. Was never considered the best player in the league, though. Had, had a great, great yeah. playoff run in 2006 where he won a title. Was never considered the best player in the league the way Giannis was for two years in a row. So, like, it feels like Giannis has already past him so i in my okay, so, mind yeah so so would you would you put him uh at or above lebron james kevin durant tim duncan larry bird at this stage i think if uh <laughs> i don't know that i would take him over any of those 10 guys but i think if you're like turning that well, 10 man team into yeah, a 12 man let's focus team, on the forwards though so yeah in that in that forward you know category, you've got James Durant, Duncan, and Bird. Has he equaled or eclipsed those four guys yet? I don't think you can say that quite yet. I, I think I want to see him do it again in some fashion. I, I would agree. But here's think... here, here's where it gets maybe a little bit more difficult because you mentioned Dirk Nowitzki. So in the next tier down, which we call the all-time greats tier, we've got Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, Dirk Nowitzki, and Dr. J. So, you know, you mentioned uh, Dirk, you know, Dirk's got a championship. Dr. J has a championship. Carl Malone, Charles Barkley do not have championships. Um, so has he eclipsed any of those four guys? I mean, is it, is it crazy to, to think that he has? Like, I just think, I think, uh, if he retires today for yeah. whatever reason, if he had a terrible knee injury and he had to retire, I think I would remember him as having reached a level that went beyond what Carl Malone or Charles Barkley or Dirk Nowitzki yeah. was able to do. I mean, I just think I would. And I agree. Uh, and that seems absurd to say of someone it, who's 26 years old. And it seems especially absurd to say of a guy who we weren't even thinking in that realm a couple, a couple months ago. Uh, but it's just, I was so, so impressed by what he did in these last few playoff rounds that, uh, yeah, I think he's knocking on the door to that top 10 list. I think that's, that's where I would put it is he's, if, if that 10 man team adds two guys for a 12 man roster, Giannis is one of the two guys that they're adding to that team. That's mm. kind of the way I, I put it right now. And yeah. I think if he gets that second title, then I think it does really become a conversation. Has he eclipsed Hakeem? Has he eclipsed mm. Kevin Durant or Steph Curry, who won their share of titles, you know, together with one another? And, and uh, whereas Giannis was carrying this team in a way that, that few players have done. So uh, I think a second title would really um, make, it, make it really interesting as far as where he fits in there. But I think he's, he's knocking on the door now, which is crazy to say for someone that's 26 years old. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think um, when you look at, say, like a Charles Barkley, um, there was never a time where I really thought, oh, Charles Barkley is the best player in the NBA. I mean, you know, was he one of the, the greatest? Was he a perennial all-star? Absolutely. But, but I think it's pretty fair to say that uh, you know, you could you could make the argument over the last three years, Giannis has been the best player in the NBA, and this is not a weak, uh, low time in the NBA. There's a lot of 
incredible superstars, uh, you know, those that are have been in the league for a long time, those that are at the height of their career, and those that are budding superstars. So to say that he's the best of this current crop is a pretty sizable statement. Um, so yeah, I think the, the big question going into this playoffs was, can he do it in the playoffs? They had a disappointing exit the last couple years after he won uh, consecutive MVPs. That was probably the thing that was kind of, you know, holding him back from being in this conversation. But all of that's been thrown out the window now. He's, he's got the resume and the eye test just tells you this guy is one of the greatest of all time. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, it's an exciting thing. One of the things that I think is going to be interesting, and this may be a good segue into another topic, uh, Mark, with our limited amount of time, is can he win another championship in Milwaukee without a super team? You know, because this was a very unique NBA playoffs. Some yeah. of our super teams were kind of dismantled with injuries with you know some uh you know shifting of 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 talent at the last minute but when you look at some of the moves that that are happening for instance the potential of russell westbrook going to the lakers you know will he, and and there's a lot of conversation about bradley beal going to the warriors of course clay thompson coming back healthy drayvon green steph curry What's what's the possibility of Giannis winning another NBA championship outside of them recruiting an NBA superstar? And, you know, was this kind of just a special window for him to, to, to grab this championship when uh, things were a little bit vulnerable? I think the direction of the league is definitely towards multiple stars needed to win. And I think that he does have a sidekick in Chris Middleton, who is, I think, showed himself to be capable of being that kind of guy, a guy who can score 40 points in a playoff game when he's feeling it, you know, on the right night. And um, so I think he has that, you know, as far as like, I don't think that Milwaukee under Giannis will necessarily turn into a dynasty. But I think, uh, you know, if you're thinking about like, say, Dirk Nowitzki in Dallas or um, even Tim Duncan would be the best case scenario in San Antonio. Can he be basically the anchor for a team that is competitive year in and year out that has very good players around him, even if they're not great players that is able to develop their own talent or find the occasional free agent to come join him. And, and just that they're in the mix every year, because that's essentially what Dirk and Duncan were able to do in their long careers in one, one, uh, market is that they were just able to keep their teams in the hunt year after year after year. And I fully expect at this point that that's what, what Giannis would do uh, if healthy is that this team for the next, you know, as long as he is healthy and in his prime is going to be in the mix in an Eastern conference that isn't as good as the Western conference. So uh, I don't know whether that will result in another championship. It's really hard to win one. Uh, but I think, uh, I feel a lot more positive about those chances than I did a couple months ago. You know, Mark, I was just thinking about this, that um, the last time the Milwaukee Bucks won an NBA championship was uh, in 1971 under a young, ultra athletic, one of the greatest of all time, a player named Lou Alcindor, of course, we now know him as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah. And uh, in 1975, he left the Bucks to go to the Los Angeles Lakers. What are the odds that that's going to happen again? Not necessarily to the Lakers, but that Giannis is going to take a similar path and say, okay, you know, I can't forge the kind of legacy I want in Milwaukee. So I'm going to go to to where the money is. Based on what he said in his post-game press conference about how important it was for him to deliver a title to Milwaukee and to not do it on a super team, I would be surprised if that 
becomes a move for him in the immediate future. I, I think uh, he seems pretty locked in there. And I know that can change quickly in the NBA, especially superstars can get um, uncomfortable. But, yeah. uh, but I think uh, when you won a title in a, in a city and you've delivered them a championship the way he has, there becomes a lot more positive feelings on both sides to try to kind of make it work in the long term. And so uh, I think he has a chance to be a really special figure in that city. And that seems to appeal to him. And so I, I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that he will decide to, to stay in Milwaukee for the long haul. Yeah, I do too. I, I think that's good for basketball when, when superstars stay home with their, their original team. Uh, but there's, a, there's always a move, and the, the next move might be uh, Russell Westbrook to the Lakers, joining um, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, if if this trade happens, does that make uh, the Lakers the favorite to win the West? Well, I think the Lakers would have been the favorite this year if they were healthy. I think if you have a healthy LeBron and a healthy Anthony Davis, you've got to be considered a favorite. And uh, adding Westbrook to that certainly doesn't hurt them. I mean, Westbrook, we've talked about him on this mm -hmm. podcast, is that he's the classic. He's going to bring... 60% onto the table and take 40% off of the table at the same time. And you just kind of have to live with that. And so it'll be fascinating to kind of see how he works with, with LeBron and AD. But I think in general, adding talent around LeBron is a good thing. And LeBron is one of the smartest basketball players of all time. And, and I'm sure we'll appreciate Westbrook's uh, energy and effort and we'll bring out the best in him. And so, uh, yeah, that certainly makes them even more formidable in the West provided, provided they can stay healthy. Yeah. And uh, just one other NBA tidbit, um, the D Detroit Pistons who have the number one overall pick have already announced that they'll be taking Cade Cunningham from Oklahoma State. Um, Mark, any, any comments or, or insight on uh, what Cade Cunningham will mean to that team? My only insight is that uh, Cade Cunningham could be a great player, and yet the odds of him leading Detroit to a championship uh, are pretty slim. If you look back at history, the teams that have won the title thanks to a number one pick, it usually required multiple number one picks in order to do that. You think about the Lakers drafted Magic Johnson and James Worthy first. The Spurs drafted David Robinson and Tim Duncan. The Cavs drafted LeBron James and Kyrie Irving. Uh, there's just not a lot of history of getting one star with the first pick and that completely changing uh, the focus of your franchise. You, you have to have multiple players in order to do that. Even Milwaukee had to add Giannis and Chris Middleton at the same time. When they drafted Giannis, they also brought in Chris Middleton. And so uh, for Cade Cunningham's sake, I hope uh, Detroit can find another another star near his level to, to pair him with. Uh, yeah. or otherwise, uh, I'm afraid... He just could be a talented player on a, on a bad team. And most likely he will be for at least a little while. The question is, what can they build around him? Uh, I, I like Isaiah Stewart, who came out of the University of Washington. He's kind of got that, in my mind, a little bit of that um, Detroit mojo. He's, he's a rebounder. He's a tough defender. He's a hustle guy. Uh, I think he'll, he'll work well with that team moving forward. He's a guy that I think, um, you know, can give you 10 points and 10 rebounds every single game and, um, and, and make all those hustle plays. So I think there's some, some, some good pieces that Detroit will have moving forward. But as we've already discussed, this is a superstar driven league and uh, you can't do it with one superstar unless you're Giannis. So, I mean, that's, that's just the way this thing is set up. Well, hey, Mark, it's, um, we're about a, an hour into this thing. We haven't touched on the Olympics, and I don't want to gloss over that. So how about we do this? We're going to wrap it up for today, and um, next week we'll give the bulk of our attention to stories related to the, the 2021 Olympics. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, that sounds great. Lots, lots to talk about next week. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Dog and Duck Show. Uh, my name is Warren. As always, I say, go dogs. And I'm Mark, go ducks.
All right, we'll see you next time.